So the title of the study is Doctrine of Salvation. This is our eighth study, so we have two more um, at the, after tonight. So we'll have a study on uh, the doctrine of the church and doctrine of last things. So we should be able to take those out in the next two weeks. That's the plan. Um, uh, if you're just joining us, you're going to see me go at a pace that is far different than what I do on a Sunday morning. I really have done it any, probably any other time. Um, because we're trying to cover so much material to give you a summary kind of view of the entire subject. Um, so um, there'll be a lot of verses that are going to go up there. Um, the good news is this, is that if, you're, if you feel frustrated because you can't write that fast, um, these notes are already up on our website, as are all the previous seven weeks. So if you just go to our, our website, you can find the uh, audio, the video, you should be able to find the audio, video, and um, a download of these notes that I'm going through right now. So if you miss something, you can go find them right there. But let's talk about the doctrine of salvation. This certainly has to stand out as one of the great themes of Scripture. It does stand out as one of the great themes of Scripture. It's the chief aim of the incarnation, isn't it? One author writes, Restoration to the divine favor and to life in intimate communion with God. That is the story of Scripture. And, and how blessed we are. Even in the announcement that came to Joseph concerning the child Mary, it was said in Matthew 1.21 that Jesus, his name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. I mean, right at the conception, there is this theme of salvation, and Jesus is the one that would do it. But then we can look straight to the words of Jesus himself, who said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. What? A ransom. For many, you see the theme of salvation. So tonight, the plan is to um, consider the plan of salvation, the atonement, the conversion of man, and the result of salvation. So we begin by talking about the plan of salvation. That a conversation can even be had by us about what God's plan is for salvation is good news. That we can even enter into this subject with confidence and assurance, is, it's amazing that we have been brought into this. The Lord has revealed this to us. And if it were not for God being moved in eternity past to create and save man, this discussion wouldn't even be possible. But God has revealed in his counsel he wants to redeem mankind. So in this section where we talk about election, and predestination, under the plan of salvation, we're going to talk about uh, election and predestination. Those are the first themes we're going to discuss. And then we'll talk about the purpose and the means of salvation in the second half under the plan of salvation. So election. The New Testament clearly teaches that God has chosen or elected men and women to be the recipients of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of Bible verses. Ephesians 1.4 just as he chose us in him. The word chose there, it's word election. It can be translated either way there. But just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Or in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation. So these are a couple of places where um, these words are used. So in the Ephesians 1.4, we have a verb um, there, chose, which is eklegomai. And then you have an adjective that's used in um, 1 Peter 2.9, which is elect, eklektos. 
And, the, and the, it's the idea is just the way you think. It means to choose, to set apart, to elect. Um, and it's the idea uh, with the adjective in particular, the quality of being chosen, selected, set apart with the biblical implication that it is God who chooses. God is the chooser in this. Don't think about you choosing. It's God that is choosing and he is electing. That God would elect us to be the recipients of his love through his sovereign choice. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's so amazing that every song we just sang was written by people that were amazed about the salvation of God. When David mused upon God taking time to consider us and to save us, he said, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Who are we to enter into the thoughts of God Almighty? This is truly an amazing truth that he would then choose us. And too often when we talk about the doctrine of election or the doctrine of predestination, where we end up going to is arguing. We end up, rather than praising our maker, we begin fighting with our brother. I'm not saying we've got it all figured out and there's not a difference of opinion. It exists. And you may have a different one than me. But I think what we can agree upon is however it exactly works out, God thought of us before the foundation of the world, and he said, I want you. And that should just cause us all to drop to our knees and raise our hands before, in praise before we start raising our hands with questions. And I think, unfortunately, we've missed this mark too often. But I'm not trying to be simplistic here. A controversy does exist. Let me read to you. What Henry Thiessen writes, he says, The Christian church is divided on the understanding of this doctrine, especially as it relates to the divine sovereignty and human responsibility, coupled with the righteousness and holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Scripture indicates that election is based on foreknowledge. Gives a couple of verses. But the actual meaning of foreknowledge is debated. The actual meaning of foreknowledge is debated. Is it merely prescience or foresight? Or does it relate more closely to actual choice? Does God in his foreknowledge perceive what each man will do in response to his call and then elect him to salvation in harmony with this knowledge? Or does foreknowledge mean that God from eternity past looked with favor upon some and then elected them to salvation? And that's where the debate lies. So great men and women of God have wrestled with this. And people have landed on either side. Charles Ryrie acknowledges this. He says, no human mind will ever harmonize sovereignty and free will, which certainly election touches that. But ignoring or downplaying one or the other in interest of a supposed harmony will solve nothing. And this is so often what we do when we come to really controversial points in Scripture. We'll just we'll go and we'll take, it, we'll take our, our stand here and we will pile up our scripture verses, somehow unwilling to look over here to the right at these people that have their pile of scripture verses, and we end up missing the balance that we should find from scripture, even if it leaves us with a bit of tension. Even if it leaves us with a bit of tension. I'd rather have tension and acknowledge scripture and raise up my hands and say, not sure how you can figure all that out, 
but that's what the Bible says, than to be so confident and to stand on one point while ignoring other places where the Bible would teach a, a, a challenging um, position. So, divine election is according to the foreknowledge of those who would confess Christ as Savior. So there's my, my take. Foreknowledge is not just like, oh, yeah, I know what people are going to do. But it's like the Lord knows, I know what they're going to do, and I choose them. So these are the two camps that people fall under. I, I think the former camp, while accept, accepted and held by many godly men and women, brilliant brothers and sisters in Christ, my point is not to degrade the other view, but just simply to say, I think that is too simple. I think God didn't just know it. I think he knew it and did something about it, and the foreknowledge led him to that election. You can chew on that. How about predestination? And this word is derived, the word predestination, prorizo, is derived from, um, well, is, is used six times. All right, You have it in Acts 4.28. Um, you have it in Romans 8, 29, and 30. You have it in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. And you have it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, and, and verse 11. So you can put the, start putting those verses up there if you don't mind. So you see that here in, in verse 28 that um, God determined to do something beforehand. Predestined is this the same Greek word, uh, prorizo. And Romans 8, 29, 30. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So the word foreknowledge in that discussion comes out of this verse right here. So he foreknew and he predestined. Um, moving down to verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. So sometimes people say, would well, you believe in predestination? Do I have a choice? It's in the Bible. Of course I believe in predestination. Now, your view of it may, you know, we may have a different view of what this means. But that the Bible teaches election and predestination is without question, is taught. 1 Corinthians 2.7 But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of which God ordained before the ages. So not exactly tied into um, him uh, predestining us, but just knowing and determining what he's going to do ahead of time. And then Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 11, um, having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Or Ephesians 1, 11, in him also we've obtained an inheritance having, uh, excuse me, uh, an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's the use of that word. It means to decide upon beforehand, um, to predetermine uh, one um, lexicon defines it. Uh, Mounts um, writes, and he says, it is derived, the word prorizo, is derived from pro, meaning before or ahead of, and orizo, meaning to appoint, decide, or determine. And he gives this little note here. God is always the one doing the action of this verb. So this is not a passive verb. This is an active verb, and God is the one that is doing it. He is the actor in predestination. So he is predestination is an act of God for those God has elected for salvation, I would say according to his foreknowledge. But some have added to this doctrine of predestination of the elect 
saying that God has predestined the rest of mankind to eternal destruction. Let me say that again. Some have added to this doctrine of predestination of the elect, saying that God has also predestined the rest of mankind, the non-elect, to eternal destruction. This is known as double predestination. Don't believe it. I don't believe that God created man to be fuel for the fires of hell. While God is to be praised for the salvation, for the election, our predestination, the responsibility for those who are perishing falls upon the unrepentant person, not God. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. What does it say? Not willing that any should perish. So why would he predestine people to perish if he's not willing that any? That doesn't make sense. It does, not only is it not logical, it doesn't match the heart of God. Um, but he wants everybody to come to repentance. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1.8 in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey. Obey is a, um, a, uh, a present active participle. So again, it's, it's the idea that they are, not the, they are the ones that are not obeying. So you can see where responsibility lies for rejecting the Lord. It lies with, with the individual. It does not lie with the Lord, as would the conclusion of double predestination. Although they got their way of saying that, no, not really, it's not God, but it's not, I just, I don't even want to take the time to discuss it. So if you want to study it out, go ahead. But what is the purpose of salvation? Well, as noted in the introduction, the doctrine of salvation is to bring man into a right standing with his maker. And Scripture provides at least two clearly stated reasons for offering this salvation. First, because, you know it, he loves the world. Why does God, what is his purpose in wanting to save man? He loves mankind. So we're talking about all these, you know, uh, theological terms, but let's just kind of bring it home. Why, why is he doing this? Because he loves you. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Without understanding how wonderfully man is loved by God, not because of merit, the cross is a really difficult act to understand and make sense of. But if you look at the cross and you understand the love of God to ransom man, now that makes sense. But if you pull out love... It just is like, hmm, wow. Secondly, uh, why God wants to save us, Ephesians 2.7 states that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So <laughs> the Lord's amazing grace is going to be a point of worship and discussion and marvel throughout the ages. John Stott, writing on this verse, says, What prompted God to act on our behalf was not something in us, some supposed merit, but something in himself, his own, merited, um, his own unmerited favor. So we will stand as trophies of God's grace and kindness, not something we've earned, 
but will be trophies of his grace. His loving act of redemption will declare for all of eternity that we have been saved by the grace of God, that God is a gracious uh, maker, creator, sovereign God. So this is the purpose of salvation, because he loves us, that it, for all of eternity we might be able to ponder his amazing grace. What is the means of salvation? So coming into the second point of this section, the means of salvation. We're still under the big title of the plan of salvation. But what is the means? Um, how is it that God wills that man should, that, he, that God would accomplish salvation for man? And in this, we must turn to the gospel, right? We must turn to the good news. The good news, the gospel, is how man ends up receiving salvation. Paul declared in Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So we want to know, um, you know, how does it happen? It happens through the preaching of the gospel and, of course, the reception of that message. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, gives us a real good definition. You wrote, if you're not writing a lot down, you might want to know these verses because here's the gospel in succinct form. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day. That's pretty simple, isn't it? It's one, two, three. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose the third day. This is the gospel. And so we talk about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in this salvation act, man can have his sins forgiven and having, have a right standing with God restored. It's in the gospel message of what Christ did. He came, he died, he rose from the dead, right? He died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose. That is how we end up receiving salvation as one puts their faith and trust. So, simply put, it is a finished work of Christ alone that man finds the means of salvation. It's not anywhere else. You can't go anywhere else. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can, can he make it any clearer that you can't get right with God other than through coming to Jesus. It's about as emphatic as you can make the statement. So these topics of election, predestination, God's purposes, and the means of salvation, um, they really, these are the most glorious statements, these are the most glorious writings that you will find in any literature. That we, we, there's a plan of salvation that God has. And to hear of how God is, and you'll never read anything more amazing than this. We move on to the discussion of atonement. And atonement is a topic that brings us into the, the, the details, if you will, of salvation. So topics like redemption or propitiation are going to be discussed. And we're also going to talk about the extent of Christ's atonement. Again, a little point of controversy around that one, but we'll, we'll get that last. But let's talk about, under this idea of atonement, let's talk about redemption. Redemption is a topic that is talked about throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. 
In the Old Testament, there are three Hebrew words that are used for redemption. In the New Testament, there are four Greek words. So seven words in the Bible are used around this word redemption. And the basic idea behind the word redemption is freeing, liberation. David Reitmeier writes, the ideas of loosing from a bond, setting free from captivity or slavery. So these are some you know, pictures that are very easy for us to see. Buying back something lost or sold. Exchanging something in one's possession for something possessed by another. And ransoming. So this is kind of the idea behind the word redemption. You've been redeemed. You've been ransomed. You've been set free from captivity, from slavery. You've been bought back. This is, these are the ideas that are associated with redemption. And redemption in Christ is the primary focus of the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.18 through 20, Peter gives us a very clear understanding of this redemption picture. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. What was it that he paid to buy you out of the slave market of sin? Silver and gold? No, it wasn't that. The payment that the Father laid down was the blood of Christ. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was, listen to this, foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for what? You. For you. The Lord loves us. Man was lost in sin, having no hope. Jason talked about that, that darkness that he was in, and maybe others had felt they were in, and how the Lord came. But the Lord stepped in and redeemed and, and pulled out of that mire. And so we can rejoice. Redemption. He redeemed us. Propitiation. Now, this is a word that we talked about in our study in Exodus. I don't know if you remember that, but we, we were talking about the mercy seat. So around Exodus 25. Um, so recently, just on Sunday morning, we were discussing this. But when we talk about um, this subject... Um, we need to know that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Yet because God loves man, he's not happy to have him in that, on the other side of the chasm where he has fallen short. And so this is where the idea of propitiation comes in. One author defines it as plactating. Or satisfying the wrath of God by atoning sacrifices. And of course, in our context, is of Christ. We read it again. Propitiation is um, uh, placating or satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And that, that really does capture what is going on with propitiation. So let's give a verse where this word is used. Romans 3.25. Speaking of Jesus... Whom God set forth as a propitiation. What is propitiation? It's satisfying the wrath of God by the atoning sacrifice. And in this context, Jesus is that atoning sacrifice. 
through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Um, so this word propitiation, um, it, it was used in a, um, outside of uh, our faith by others, the Hellenists, the, the Greek um, believers. They also had this, this word propitiation. And it is the, the way they viewed it is a, that which serves as an instrument for regaining the goodwill of a deity. So I want to regain the goodwill of a deity. And what is the instrument? Whatever that instrument is, that's, that's the propitiation. And there's an Old Testament picture, as I mentioned, in Exodus 25. In the Holy of Holies was what? The Ark of the Covenant. This box that had in it um, Aaron's rod that had budded. It had a jar of manna. What else did it have? Ten commandments. Two tablets of stone were in there. And then they put a lid on top of that box. And that lid is called the mercy seat. All right. You're making your pastor feel good because it means you were paying attention or you recall from some other time. The mercy seat. Now here's the interesting thing. The word mercy seat in Greek, so if you were to read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same word as I just read to you in Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a mercy seat. So Jesus was not only that place where that blood was going to be poured out, but it was his blood that was poured out. He is our all in all. And so we have this picture of atonement. Let me read to you what one author has to say on this. He says, The lid or the covering of the Ark of the Covenant made of pure gold on and before which the high priest was to sprinkle the blood of the expiation. I can't say the word. The covering of sacrifices is what it means. I know what it means. On the day of atonement and where the Lord promised to meet his people. Where the Lord promised to meet his people. Where do we meet the Lord? Jesus. This is where we come to him. And so this is applied to the Lord, this idea of the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat. This is applied by Paul in Romans 3.25, and he is the propitiation. A place that serves as an instrument for regaining the goodwill of God. So Romans 3.25, that's the verse to keep in mind. Uh, Biblical atonement. So um, I was going to include some other False views, but just for the sake of time, I've condensed it down to just the biblical atonement view. And um, this is Jesus dying in the place of sinners, that he might purchase their freedom, to reconcile them to God. This is the idea of atonement. Jesus did not simply die on the cross. He willingly went as a lamb to the slaughter to take man's judgment for sin. Okay, so... Oh, how unfortunate Jesus died on the cross. No, 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 no. There was a plan behind him dying on the cross, and the plan was that he would be the lamb that would be put to death to take the judgment for sin. Paul beautifully states this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about our atonement. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You don't know that verse, you might want to write that one down too. 
Jesus became sin for us, and we are given the righteousness of God. How beautiful that picture is. So the atonement is a work of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection to restore lost humanity into a right relationship with God. A few verses talk about this so clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, 13. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He, was a, he atoned for our sins. Verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So Jesus, I mean... What Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection was all to atone for sins. 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. So again, the point we made is he didn't just die on a cross. There was something, something happening of epic uh, proportions, and that is the sin of the world was being placed on him, and he was atoning for our sin. But how far does this atonement, him taking on the sins of the world, how far does that go? Again, a point of debate among Bible-believing conservative scholars. And it comes down to this question, who did Christ atone for? Who did he atone for when he died on the cross? And the terminology that's most often associated with this question is limited atonement and unlimited atonement. So what is limited atonement? It's a view that holds that Jesus died um, only for the elect, whereas the unlimited view teaches that Jesus died for everyone. So let's, let's read a couple of verses that are used to support a limited atonement view. John 10, 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. So they'll take that, and they'll say it is only for the sheep of God's fold that he laid down his life. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Oh, so it's the church that he purchased with his blood. So, of course, the the result of Christ's work is um, there's going to be a flock. The result of Christ's work is there's going to be a church. But then to read back into that, that he did not atone for everyone, is not something that I believe is taught. With the unlimited atonement view, in other words, he died for all people, the sins of all people, not all will come. I mean, this is obvious. Jesus said himself. It was a narrow path that was going to, that people would be on leading to salvation. But what does the Bible say? And there are, um, uh, Paul ends writing, in the Moody Handbook of Theology, writes, the word whosoever is used more than 110 times in the New Testament and always with an unrestricted meaning. And I'll give you a handful of examples, not anywhere near 110, but just just a few here where you can zero in and see um, what the Bible has to say about 
it's for everyone or whosoever is the word we're going to focus on. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive the remissions of sin. Remission of sins. Romans 10.13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Revelation 22.17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So while in John 10, 15 and Acts 2, 28, we are hearing that the church is the ones that the Lord laid down his life for, the ones that he purchased, the, the, the sheep, it is true that he did that. But then to read into that and it was only them, you got a problem because you have a whole lot of other verses that say it's for everyone. So um, is everybody going to come? No, we're not universalists. But the offer goes out. And this is why we go and we preach to everybody. And we share the gospel with everyone. That's why we're called to go and preach to the nations. We don't know who is going to put their faith and trust in the Lord. The Lord knows that. But we go and we preach. Again, um, not only will men find themselves enduring the judgment of God for their sin in general, but also for the specific rejection of Christ's atoning work on the cross. The point I want to make here in this is 2 Thessalonians 1.8. We've already read it, but it says, In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how can you hold them accountable if they were never included? Do you see? I mean, they're being held responsible here in the worst of, you know, way, flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, but if the Lord didn't even die for them, then this just seems to make God out as being unjust. Now, I know those who hold this position do not think that, but to me, the conclusion is just that obvious. I believe that the Lord's atoning work has extended to the whole world, but it is not going to be received by the whole world. So, an interesting topic, um, the, uh, this, this discussion, limited atonement, that's the L in the Calvinist uh, TULIP acronym. In case you were wondering. You looked like you were wondering, so that's why I told you. Well, let's move on. Let's talk about conversion. The conversion of an individual is the way the spiritual transformation from death to life, darkness to light, is referred to. It's conversion. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and be what? Converted. That your sins may be blotted out. Well, that's what we want. That's what we've been talking about. And that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The idea of conversion, according to Lonida, and I quote, to return to a point or area where one has been before. With probable emphasis on turning about 
to return, to go back to. That's the word convert, to return to the point or area where one has been before. Now, we were born, you know, in sin, right? I mean, we're separated, we have this sin nature, but God's plan for man is where he's trying to get us back to, and that's fellowship with him. So that is the conversion view that we are looking at. And the three key action words that will help us to understand this work of conversion. They are grace, they are faith, and they are repentance. Three words that help us to understand the conversion that we go through. So let's talk about grace first of all. Uh, the work of converting a soul back to the purposes for which it was created is an act of God's grace. Okay, Man has never experienced salvation apart from the grace of God. Well, what about during the law? It was grace. What about before the law? It was grace. What about today? It's grace. It's always grace. It's always been grace. Read Romans. Pick up around chapter 4. And there are only two roads mankind will travel when they stand before the Lord. You will, you know, they say all roads lead uh, to God. Well, I know what they mean and I disagree, but there is a sense in which it's right. Everybody's going to be before God. And you'll arrive before God having traveled on one of two roads. You're either going to travel on the road of grace through Jesus Christ, or you will have traveled by the way of works. And this is how you will be judged, either by the grace of God through Christ and finding that atoning work, removing your sins, having experienced a conversion, or you'll be judged according to your works, which no man will stand. Nobody will stand innocent. Jesus declared emphatically that it is only through him that man can find a favorable standing before God. You've got to come on the road of grace or you don't get to come at all. Paul succinctly states this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The road of grace, right? That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works lest anyone should boast. So Paul only sees two roads. Either coming before God on the road of grace or you're coming on the road of works. That the road of works will not lead to salvation. So first important word for us to understand being converted is that is grace. And that is, it is God's grace towards us. The next word is faith. Conversion is the result of the grace of God being offered to man through the atoning work of Christ. I'm just trying to put it all together here. Conversion is a result of the grace of God being offered to man through the atoning work of Christ. How then does one receive this gift of salvation? How does one appropriate the grace of God? The answer is, yeah, it's faith. That's the answer. That's how you appropriate this grace that the Lord is offering. Again, just read it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved. What? Through faith. Harold Honer writes, Faith is not a work. It does not merit salvation. It is only the means by which one accepts God's free salvation. And this is, again, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Um, Through faith and that not of yourselves. It's not a work, right? It's a gift of God, not of works. I think it's something maybe we, we sometimes we don't see it that way. But it's, 
It's the means by which we receive the grace of God, and it is not a work. It is something that is even a gift of God. So while faith is not the grace that saves us, it is nonetheless a vital aspect of how God has made his grace acceptable, uh, excuse me, accessible to men. This is, if you will, faith is the, the hands that reaches out and receives the grace of God. And so this is our second word, faith. Repentance is another word we need to think about when we're talking about conversion. And this is defined by Wayne Grudem as a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. But it is important for us when considering repentance that it not be viewed as a step before putting faith in Christ. It's not a step before. It's something that is happening. It's like a coin that has two sides. It happens together. Again, Paul Ann says, it should not be understood as a separate step in salvation. Acts 20, 21, he says, indicates that repentance and faith should not be seen as separate items in response to the gospel, but together they signify belief in Christ. To believe in Christ is to change one's mind about Christ and to trust in him for salvation. Uh, Wayne Grudem doubles down on the same point. He says, Scripture puts repentance and faith together as different aspects of the one act of coming to Christ for salvation. It is not that a person first turns from sin and next turns to Christ, or first trusts in Christ and then turns from sin, but rather that both occur at the same time. When we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking Christ to save us from. Why is this important? Because if I've got to repent without having full salvation, what do you think that's going to look like? Do you think you're going to be able to do it? You're going to be able to return to that place? No. So we must see this as something that happens together. This is something that's important for us to see. So in calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus, we need to remember that repentance is a mindset and not a pattern of living. So in other words, if we call people to repentance before they actually believe, um, then we're asking them to change who they are. And you can't do that on your own. And isn't this what holds up so many people? Well, I would come, but I mean, I can't change myself. And they're like, yeah, we know you can't do it. But when you come, the Lord is going to change you. But what needs to be present is that mindset. It's that attitude. It's that heart. It's that belief. I am done with sin, and I need Jesus. And that is a decision that is made at the same time. We're coming to the end here. Let's talk about the results of salvation. So I think I have two major sections left. So the results of salvation... Is that it? Yep, just one major section, actually. So quite a few points under this. We'll talk about forgiveness, justification, reconciliation, adoption, and so on. But let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness. We sing about it a lot, don't we? We sing a lot about this. We Probably in your prayers, you thank the Lord so much for it. King David wrote, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those 
whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Here's the truth, the biblical truth. Right now, in the first moment you stand before the Lord, your sin is put out from his sight. Your record is clean. There's not going to be a mop-up when you get to heaven. I'm glad about that. Is anybody else glad there's no mop-up? I, I don't know where I got it. It's probably your fault, Dad. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but somewhere along the way, I had this concept. I've shared this before, that when I got to heaven, there was going to be like every wrong thing I'd ever done, and I was going to have to explain myself for it. Now, fortunately, I was only six, seven, eight, or nine years old when I thought that, so that was a little easier to handle than being 55 and thinking about that process. But I wouldn't want it at six, and I certainly don't want it after 55 years. So forgiveness. Oh, it's so good that our, our debt has been cleared. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. So apart from God providing a way for his righteous judgment of sin to be satisfied, there can never be the hope of eternal life. Where does the forgiveness come in? Well, this is what Jesus did. He atoned for our sins. So he did not only save us. So the Lord has not only saved us, and I love this, and we sing about it a lot. He also has removed the shame associated with our sin. So I was talking about the first moment in heaven. Jude wrote about it. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you, what? Faultless before the presence of his glory with great regret for how I live my life. That's not what it says. It says with exceeding joy. Let's talk about justification. The results of conversion is we've been forgiven. We have been justified. And, and it's, it's like the forgiveness is amazing and wonderful, but then we just like add another thought and theme on top of it, and the glory of our salvation just continues to get amazing, more and more amazing. It doesn't stop with just uh, forgiveness. Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Justification. This talks about that instantaneous act where in that legal system of God's evaluation of sin, we are considered righteous. We talked about um, this last week about in, uh, the imputation that we find the, the um, transfer of righteousness into our account from Christ. Well, this is, this is a part of the justification. We are justified before the Lord. We are without sin. It's um, uh, righteous instantly before God because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, receiving his grace and therefore the atoning work of Christ. And we are standing before the Lord with his righteousness. His righteousness. And this is so profound. We are no longer guilty before the Lord. When? Well, is this a future word? Justified? Whom he justified? Is that future? Well, it's not future. Right now, you are righteous before the Lord. 
Oh, be careful, Troy. You start talking about people being justified and righteous before the Lord. They might just go out and just, you know, live it up. you got to give a warning in there. Do you have to give a warning to somebody who has a brand new shiny car to not get a dent on it? The dents just happen, don't they? As a matter of fact, I looked at my truck, which is not brand new, but I like it. And I looked at three dents right down the door. I'm like, how in the world did they like open the door, boom, drive forward a foot, boom, drive forward another? I'm like trying to figure out how did this, and I'm, I'm mindful of where I park. Because I like, like it's, not, it's not a beater. But how much more knowing that I have a righteous standing before God? Well, what kind of righteousness is it? Like you know, the righteousness that ten men could uh, compile together and transfer? No, it's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. If that doesn't make you want to live a holy life and stay away from sin, knowing that you have a brand new shiny salvation, then I don't even know whether you're saved or not. And I'm not just trying to be sarcastic here. I, I don't even know, because it's just, when you're saved, you want to walk with the Lord. I'm, I'm clean before God. Haven't you said this before? Hey, uh, the, you know, husband or wife, hey, can you come help me clean this, work on this, do that, do that? And a st- statement comes back at times, I just got dressed or I just got cleaned up. And the idea is I don't want to go get dirty. I just it took some effort to get clean. Well, how much more with the righteousness of God in our terrible sin being taken away? Justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Justification. Reconciliation and adoption. Enmity existed between God and man. And so he sent his son to die on the cross and to remove that. This renewed state of peace between God and man is called reconciliation. Colossians 1, 21, verse 22 says, And you who are alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has, and there's our word, reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Glorious verse there. You know, God is the offended party in this relationship. And there's so much that could be said about this point. Because the way people often live today is as if God has offended them. God has not offended you. You have offended God. I have, mankind has offended God. Well, I don't like the way. No, no, no. You have offended God. God has not offended you. You may have a thought that he has, but that is only a statement of mine and yours failure to understand who God is and what he does. But he's the offended party, and it is he who's come to do all the work to restore communion. So when we're told to forgive one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us, it falls upon us in our own personal relationships. But look at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to him through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 
not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We go preach the gospel. We go preach reconciliation. You are an enemy with the Lord, but you can be a friend of the Lord. This is the message he's given us to preach. So having been reconciled to God, man is given the high privilege to be adopted. The relationship has been restored. And Ephesians 1.5 says, Having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. He didn't take you, take you into his family begrudgingly. According to the good pleasure of his will. He's glad he's got you. And so we've been reconciled, and having been reconciled, now we can be adopted. And the other word we should be thinking about here under this, this topic of the effects of salvation is sanctification. The work of conversion leads to salvation, which leads to the work in our life, throughout our life, of being sanctified. The moment a believer is saved, we are set apart for the glory of the Lord. And the work of being sanctified continues throughout our lifetime. Have you noticed that? You're not finished product yet. But the Lord keeps working, doesn't he? And so every day the child of God is being shaped by the Lord to conform us into the image of the Savior. In a very practical way. Let's read this, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he do that? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Okay. And for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And this is the part I really want us to see. To a perfect man. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If we had that at, the, at our salvation, we wouldn't need the church. Church essential? Well, are you perfect? Then I guess the church is essential and those whom God has appointed within the church to help in this work of sanctification. We have all kinds of exhortations in Scripture that we should be sanctified. Romans 12, 1 and 2 may be the most well-known of them. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So God is it. We've been saved. We've been justified. But he is also sanctifying us. He is changing us to look more like his son Jesus. That's why we say we, we believe in holiness. We believe in holiness. Because what is holiness? It's looking more like Jesus. And we think he's pretty awesome. So if you've got a problem with holiness, then you've got a problem with Jesus. Because all that's happening is God is trying to make you look like his son. And if you don't want to walk in holiness or I resist holiness, then what is it about Jesus that you find so offensive that you don't want to look like him? See, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we come to the last uh, point here, preservation and eternal security. So we have something glorious. We have something wonderful. But let's talk about the preservation of our salvation. Or let's talk about the security of our salvation. John 10 verses 28 and 9 says, And I give them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Can I hear a hallelujah? Thank you, Lord. It is evident that God is going to preserve his work. And we find that the scriptures are full of promises that the work of salvation is not a work that is dependent upon human effort, but a work that rests upon the author and finisher of our faith. You know what verse I'm thinking of? Philippians 2.6. Who being in the form of... Ah, I got the wrong one. I wrote the wrong one down. I went through this so many times too. You, you would have been proud of me. I really did. Um, but it's 1.6. Um, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun, has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's begun a good work in you, and he's going to complete it. So we can have confidence that our salvation is eternal in nature. John three sixteen, right? We read it a couple of times. But the last part is that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what kind of life? Everlasting life. Now, those who argue that a believer can lose their salvation, excuse me, there are those who, do, who argue that, and then there are those who teach that once you're saved, you're always saved. The idea that salvation ebbs and flows in the life of a believer, a believer's performance, is not founded in Scripture. And I think mishandling this has caused a lot of people. To have unnecessary fear in their life that God is going to throw them away. I have talked to many, many people that said, I'm afraid that I'm not saved. I sinned. I'm afraid I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I just don't know what to do. I just, I can't believe I lost my salvation. You didn't lose your salvation. You know, you come in here and you tell me you want to live in sin and you don't care what Jesus did for you. And then you want to tell me you're going to heaven. You've got a problem. That's the person that has the problem, but not the person who is broken over their state before God. But on the other side of this much debated topic is the unfortunate conclusion that comes with once saved, always saved, and is often tagged on to this, is that it does not matter how I live my life. I, if I'm just going to be honest, I don't feel, the, the, I, and, and not just because of the words themselves, but what gets stapled onto these understandings? Eternal security. Oh, go live however you want to. You can lose your salvation. You've got to get saved again today. And neither of these things are, 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 are right or appropriate. I think we should have a confidence. We should have an assurance. We should have a rest in what Christ has begun in us and is going to finish in us. But if that truth causes you to then think you can go live however you want to, I'll say it again, I don't know that you've been saved. So I think some of this terminology that's out there has done a lot of detriment to people. So you, the idea that you can live in decided sin and rebellion and still have the promise of a glorious entry into heaven, well, you might get there, but I don't have a verse to assure you of that. Give me a verse that says you can live however you want to, and then you can go. I mean, I can find verses that talk about us being restored and um, verses that talk about, you know, the sanctification of the believer. Um, 
you know, I can find a lot of verses about the grace of God, but I can't find a single verse that says, live in decided rebellion and disobedience, and you, will, you can be assured of salvation. You don't have a verse for that. I believe the Bible, and this is where a lot of you are going to not like it, but you just have to argue with me later. I believe that the Bible both assures the believer of salvation and gives genuine warnings to continue in the faith. That's what I believe. What, what is one of those passages of a genuine warning? Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your minds by the wicked works, yet now he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith. There's a warning there, isn't there? Grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So I think sometimes people get so caught up in trying to prove the eternal security, they'll come to a passage like this, and they get so uncomfortable with this warning that they dismiss the warning and they turn this into a, a passage of assurance. There's a lot of passages that are full of assurances. And on the other side, those who feel like you got to warn people and you're going to lose your salvation. And, you know, you have it today, but if you sin tomorrow, it might be gone. And those who come like that, they come to a passage where it teaches assurance. And they somehow find a way to twist that thing into a warning passage. So this is what I do. If it's a passage that's going to assure of salvation, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to give... I'm going to derive strength and confidence that God is going to finish the work that he began in my life. But if I come to a passage that says that if indeed I continue in the faith, I'm going to press into the Lord and I'm going to continue in the faith. I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm going to consider, is there anything that is happening in my life, as it says in verse 23, that is moving me away from that which I've heard? I'm going to take that as a warning. So I know some of you would like me to just jump up and land in one even spot and say, this is the position. But, you know, I see it like this. I've used this illustration before. We have two oars in our boat. We are warned to continue, and we're warned about not following him. And we are assured of salvation. Put both of those oars in the boat and use them. And... For those who are strong on one point, you may feel, I, you know, should have said something more or, or, or something less. But to a person who's abiding in the Lord and walking with Jesus, hey, he's going to finish the work. You're not going to get out of his hands. If you're a person that's living in sin, decided open rebellion against God, and you think you're okay, you're not. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's scary. And only the Lord will know what that means. But the exhortation is to get right with the Lord. So here's our doctrine of salvation teaching. A lot covered. Hopefully you can take this. The idea, my heart, my thought is you can go back to this. You can go over this. As you read the Bible, maybe you'll be alerted to more of these themes as you see them in Scripture. And um, you'll be able to, um, yeah, be happy that your sins are not imputed to you and that there's no record of wrong. We've been saved. 
Let's close in prayer. Worship team, you can stay where you are. Father, thank you so much for your grace, for atonement, for justification, sanctification, Lord, the preservation that we have in you, that we're not going to be cast aside. Lord, I pray for those that are nervous and maybe afraid they've lost their salvation. May the scriptures come and comfort them and assure them that you are going to finish what you began. And Lord, if there are some that are living in open rebellion against you and feeling quite comfortable in it, I pray that you would unsettle them deeply tonight and that we would live as men and women ought to live who are redeemed and reconciled to you, adopted. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this salvation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.